Well, good morning, church. As you can see, I am not Caleb. A uh, little bit less beard, or a little bit more beard, a little bit less musical ability. Um, Caleb is out of town. My name is Glenn Butner, and I'll be preaching this morning. But before that, as you see, we have some church members that are leaving this morning. So we have a tradition here. We like to send them on their way with a blessing. So if you'll raise your hand with me and say, may the Lord be with you as you worship. Move this back before I knock it over. So as I said, I'm Glenn Butner. I'm not one of the elders here, but I have been a part of this church since it first began. I was part of the planting team. Um, and I actually teach theology over at Sterling College. So I see a number of my students here. You thought you could escape me on the weekend, but no such luck. Um, but I do have the privilege to preach this morning from the book of First Samuel. And Caleb invited me. I was pretty excited. And then I saw the text that he asked me to preach. And lo and behold, it is one of the foundational texts for Christian engagement with politics. So he has handed this off to me, and then he has gone to a totally different state where he is safely protected from any negative feedback. Um, but this is the word of God, and all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so I'm going to preach the text I've been given. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. That's not what the scripture tells us. Um, but we are going to need a little prayer this morning. So before I get to preaching, if you'll please join me in prayer and we can get started. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be up here this morning. And I do pray that your Holy Spirit be with us this morning, Lord. May it be with me to protect me and guide me away from any error as I preach. May you also give your Spirit that the people in this congregation may have the gift of discernment to see what is true and what is false in what I say and to see where these truths may apply to their own lives. And through the work of your Spirit, Lord, may we increase in holiness. I pray all of these things in your Son's most holy name. Amen. So as I said, we are in a sermon series going through 1 Samuel, and today I'll be preaching through most of chapter 7 and a good part of chapter 8, if you'd like to follow along with me. A lot of the texts that I'll be reading from will be on the screen, but not all of them. Um, but I am going to start this morning in chapter 7 by reading 7 verses 3 through 4, if you'd like to follow along. So here we are in 7 verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the balls and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. So we've just finished a couple of sermons where we learned where Israel wasn't always very good at trusting the Lord. But here, finally, after the Ark of the Covenant had departed for a while, and had been sent back because God had proven more powerful than the gods of the Philistines. A number of further years have passed, and Israel is finally starting to get the message, at least for a brief period of time, and they realize we need to repent. And so when Samuel calls them to repentance, that's how they respond. They return to the Lord. They repent. And in so doing, they put aside their Baals and their Ashtaroth. Now, if you're not a... Bible and theology teacher like me, you may not be quite as familiar with who Baal and who Ashtaroth was 
in the ancient Near Eastern world. So I want to introduce you to these two fake gods, starting with Baal. So we've got a, actually an inscription, an icon here from the ancient Near East. Baal was thought to be the god of agricultural fertility. He was the storm god. He would come and he would bring rain and thunder and lightning. And with the rain, your crops would grow and they would be fertile. He was also thought to be the greatest of the warriors among the gods. So in Canaanite myths, Baal was the warrior who kept back the forces of chaos to protect his people. In Phoenician, Baal actually means Lord. And he was thought to be the most powerful of the gods among the Phoenicians. He's the one who would ride in on the clouds and smite his enemies and establish an eternal kingdom. Of course, scripture doesn't have quite as positive of a view of Baal. And the one place that you might be most familiar without realizing it of this fake deity's name is in the term Baalzebub, one of scripture's names for Satan. That term is actually drawn from this deity. So, Baal is the warrior god of the storm, and his wife is Ashtart. And in the plural, that is Ashtaroth. So Ashtart, and here um, I have an old idol of her, Ashtart was thought to be the goddess of love. If Ashtart was on your side, you would find love, and through that, she was also the goddess of fertility, but not crops. In this case, it was childbearing. So if Ashtart was on your side, you would have a large family. And because she was married to the chief warrior god, she was also the goddess of war. And a lot of times, Baal would be busy, and so Ashtart would come on his behalf, bringing messages or fighting battles for the people who worshipped Baal. So yes, in the ancient world, this is something like, if, if you watch Marvel movies, you might have something like, Thor and Jane come to mind. This is basically um, what these two fake gods were thought to be. The storm gods who would win the battle on your behalf and who had a complicated loving relationship between one another. And we might find that entertaining cinema, but few of us today are probably tempted to worship Thor and Jane. If you are, then you've come to the right place. We can set you on the right track. Um, But we might find ourselves wondering, why would people in the ancient world want to worship storm gods? And usually, if you were worshiping these two deities, you were after one of three things. First, you might be after wealth. You see, in the ancient Near East, most of these societies were agricultural societies. So if your crops grew and they had high produce, that was a higher return, which meant more money, which meant more prosperity, bigger economy, more economic growth for your civilization. Actually, that resonates a little bit with some of you here in Kansas who also depend so much upon the weather. So, if Baal was on your side, if the storms came, you would get rich. If not, it might be a rough year. You would also worship them if you were pursuing power, especially military might. It was thought that if they were on your side, you would be the dominant civilization in the ancient Near East. But third, you would also worship, especially Ashtart, if you were pursuing love. And if you wanted the family that would result from this loving relationship. So, Israel had turned to Baal and to Ashtart, thinking that it could deliver prosperity and power and family to the people of Israel. And they finally realize when Samuel calls them to repentance, that's just not true. And so Samuel calls them to return to the Lord and they repent in a very genuine way. And for time's sake, I can't read everything in our very long passage I was assigned for this morning. But if you continue reading in 1 Samuel 7, you'll see that this repentance involves 
lots of dimensions. First of all, as we've already seen in verse 4, the Israelites changed their worship by putting away their false gods and their idols. But in verse 6, there is also confession that is involved. They say quite clearly, we have sinned against the Lord. They don't hide their sin. They bring it out to the open and they acknowledge it. And they respond to that sin with fasting. This is an embodied practice that expresses a deep inner emotional remorse for the sin that they've committed. They don't just know that they've sinned. They feel guilt in their heart. And then they turn away from that sin and put their trust in God. Just in the nick of time, for the Philistines come, ready for war once again, but this time the people cry out to the true God of Israel. And I think this is a great example of what biblical repentance looks like. So next time you feel convicted and you find sin in your own life, as a quick aside, you can ask, am I repenting like the Israelites did in 1 Samuel 7? Is there a genuine change in heart? Is there public acknowledgement of my sin? Have I put my trust back in God instead of whatever I had sinfully relied on instead? And here in chapter 7, the Israelites do that quite well. And so we see in 1 Samuel 7, 8, as the Philistines have arised, the people of Israel say this to Samuel. They say, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now, the terminology here, you can kind of barely see it bolded up there, but there are two terms here, cry out and save, that at this point in the Bible, these are sort of the fundamental expression of faith that you would find in the people of God. Throughout the book of Judges, for example, we've seen this pattern. The people of Israel become sinful. They're oppressed by an outside nation, and then they cry out. And God saves them, usually by sending them a powerful judge, someone like Gideon or Samson who will fight for them and deliver them with God's supernatural help. And so when they cry out and ask for salvation, they are back on course recognizing that their only hope is God. But it's even more clear in this story because this time God does not give them a warrior like Samson with supernatural strength. They just have Samuel, a regular old guy. A wise man, certainly. A man who is righteous, but not any skilled and gifted warrior. In fact, victory in this case is directly because of God. And we see this in 7 verse 10. As Samuel was offering up a burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to Israel to attack. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. I love this. God has a bit of a sense of humor here. Oh, Philistines who also worshipped Baal, you think you've got the storm God on your side that can come in powerfully in the storms, but watch this. And he uses thunder. Of all the possible things an omnipotent God could have done, he uses thunder to say, no, I'm the one that controls the storm and I'm the one that brings victory. And so the people of Israel are vindicated in their repentance. They see it is God who is their true source of hope. It is not Baal. The Lord proves himself to be our only source of hope, the true savior and provider of love, prosperity, and victory. 
I think this is the key thing that we can take home from 1 Samuel 7. And it sets the stage for us to understand how things might go wrong in chapter 8. God alone is our source of hope. All the other gods offer us a false hope. And so there's a time when Israel prospers and when Israel is righteous and trusting in the Lord. But if you know the Old Testament and if you know your own heart, you know often this doesn't last. And so we come to chapter 8. A little bit of time has passed. Samuel is old and things start to go south again. So read along with me in chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Verse 3. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. I see two things that I think Israel gets wrong here. One of them is very clear. One of them is me inferring something from the text. So I'm a bit more confident about that. I want to be straightforward. But it seems to me that Israel has subtly shifted away from trusting and hoping in God to hoping in Samuel and his family itself. They think that Samuel is the secret to their connection with God. And so Samuel's sons come along and they're no longer righteous and Israel doesn't know what to do. Now, if you're actually trusting in God and you have unrighteous judges leading you, the logical thing to do would be to turn to God and pray, hey God, can you fix this and correct these guys? Punish them, give us new judges, lead them to repentance, something. But that's not what they ask for. You see, when sin hits Samuel's family, in actually the same way that it hit the priest Eli's family, his sons went astray from the Lord. Samuel's no different. He's a mere mortal like Eli. When this happens, they want to turn to a new structure of human leadership. And so I think this shows that Israel had put its hope in the wrong thing, in Samuel, not realizing that the results weren't due to Samuel, but due to their own repentance and the Lord's mercy and grace. So that's Israel's first problem, but their second problem, and this is very clear in the text, is that they ask for a king to judge them like the other nations. You see, once again, Israel has turned and put its hope in the wrong place. They are wanting to hope in a king, in a government, in a political leader, and they think if we just have the right leader, everything is going to be okay. Give us a king like all the other nations. That must be our problem. And it's a false hope. Now, it's time to say a little bit more now about hope. This is a word I've been tossing around a lot in this sermon, and it's found a lot in Scripture, so no doubt you're quite familiar with it. But you may not recognize that a lot of Christian ethicists and theologians think about hope as a virtue. It's one of the three theological virtues from 1 Corinthians, faith, hope, and love. And so by a virtue, I'm referring to an inner disposition, sort of your instinct, your gut reaction to a situation. In ethics, a lot of times you don't have time to step back and sort of think through, what do I do in this situation? Something happens and you just have to act right away. And so 
Virtue is when your default action in a challenging situation is moral. It's good. But there's one more thing that's important to know about a virtue, and that is that it's usually sort of the middle ground between two extremes. On either side of virtue, you have what's known as a vice. And so a vice is when your instinct is actually to do something bad. You either go too far with a good thing, or you don't have enough of a good thing, and so you fall short of morally good action. So I've got a, a little chart up here with what I now see are tiny little words that you might not be able to see, but virtue in the middle, vice on each side. That's a bit abstract though, so let me give you an example with the virtue of courage. So courage is a virtue. It's a disposition. It's an inner ability to naturally overcome your fear and do the good that ought to be done. So think of someone like a firefighter who doesn't have to sit back for 20 minutes every fire and say, should I go in? How risky is it? What's going on? They're able to overcome their fear and go and do something good. That's courage. But on either side of courage, we have extremes that are vices. On one side, we have what you're probably familiar with, and that is cowardice. Fear masters you, and so you can't go forward and do the good thing you ought to do. But on the other side, there's one you may not be as familiar with, and that's recklessness. This is when, under no circumstances, do you let fear cause you to hesitate, and you just run in foolishly to any circumstance. Let me give you an example of what this might be. I saw a poll this week. For some reason, some people thought it would be fun to ask American men which wild animals they could beat in hand-to-hand -hand combat. <laughs> I don't know. But church, let me tell you, there are 6% of American men, according to this survey, that think barehanded they could beat a grizzly bear in a fight. <laughs> that is recklessness. So if after church, somebody goes outside and they say, there's a bear in the parking lot, and Eric Wenzel, who did our welcome for us this morning, starts rolling up his sleeves and says, don't worry, guys, I've got this. I hope somebody steps in and says, you're not being brave, you're being foolish. Please wait here. <laughs> or if Tony Hoover, who may have checked your kids in this morning, says, no, Eric, don't worry about it. I know Kung Fu. I hope Mary, his wife, steps in and says, you don't know that much Kung Fu. Please stay inside. And we wait for that bear to go on. And then we can go out and get in our cars. That's recklessness. You go forward expecting too much of yourself in the face of fear. It's an extreme in the wrong direction. But the same thing can happen with fear. Excuse me, the same thing can happen with hope. Hope is the middle ground here. Hope is a disposition where when we face struggles, we can automatically trust in the Lord and say, I believe the Lord can provide for me here. On one extreme, we face despair. This is where we can't muster up that hope. Something bad comes our way and we say, well, I guess it's never going to get better. This is my life now. Well, God can't help me with this. This is too big. What am I going to do? Nothing's going to get better. On the other hand, we have presumption though. And this is a bit too much confidence. Presumption is where you believe I can just act now and I'm going to get exactly what I want, when I want, how I want it. I can get the results I need. You notice the difference there? Hope says, I trust that God can do this, but I don't know when and I don't know how. Presumption says, I'm going to get it done right here, right now through God. That's a bit too much to expect. And that's not scripture's view of hope. For example, look at Romans chapter 8, verse 24 through 25. Many other places we could look, but here Paul says, Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes 
for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We don't see it. We don't know exactly what it's going to be. We can be sure it's coming. We can be sure that we trust in God, but we may need to be patient. That's hope. But here, I believe the people of Israel are being presumptuous because they are expecting a king and the government to provide them exactly what they want right here, right now on their terms. In essence, they've turned back to those same false gods, Baal and Ashtart. Because in the ancient world, there was only a very fine line between an idol and between a king. In a lot of ancient worlds, they even overlapped and they were thought to be the same. So in Babylon, for example, the king was thought to be the only one who bore the god Marduk's image. Only the king was like Marduk, none of the people. Notice how that's different from scripture. We all have God's image, but in Babylon, it's only the king that is like the god. Or even more clearly, in Rome or Greece or in Egypt, the emperors or kings or pharaohs were often thought to be divine themselves, and you were expected to worship them. So when Israel says, we want a king like all the other nations around us, you've got to stop for a second and say, look what you're really asking for. You're asking for someone that the other nations think is divine. You're asking for them to provide your prosperity, your family, and your military power instead of God. And as we go on, we'll see that Samuel rebukes the people and shows that he thinks this is exactly their problem. They are placing their hope in the wrong thing by presumptuously expecting their results now. And I wish I could say that times have changed, but I think this is something fundamental to how politics often works. Just look at the campaign slogans of some of our recent American presidents. So Joe Biden, our best days still lie ahead. So subtext, hope in me and I'm going to make things better prosperity, and power. Or Donald Trump before him, make America great again. Vote for me and I'm going to be the source of greatness in our nation. Or Barack Obama, not subtle at all, hope. It's right there. Hope in me. And then yes, we can. If you have hope in me, we're going to get it done. Or George Bush before him, I am the reformer with results. Trust in me, I'm going to fix things for you. It's the same pattern in the ancient world. But Samuel immediately sees things differently. Turning back to chapter 8, if you read on from 8, 11 and following, you're going to see that, he, that God commands Samuel to rebuke the people for asking for a king. And the one word that Samuel uses over and over and over is take, 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 take. It's something like eight times in this passage. So listen to that as I tell you the different ways that Samuel rebukes the people. Because Samuel reveals that the king of Israel does pursue power, which they're wanting, but he does so by leaving the people powerless. And so we see right in verse 11 that the people are warned that the king will take their sons. He will conscript them into military service. He will put them into forced labor. And by the end of this rebuke, at the end of verse 17, the people are told that they will be slaves because of their king. They are right back in the situation God got them out of in Egypt. They were enslaved there. God delivered them, told the people to follow God. They want a king instead. They go right back to that situation of slavery. The king of Israel pursues power by leaving the people powerless. The king also pursues prosperity by laying a financial burden on the people. 
Part of this is nepotism. We see enough of that today still in politics. But in verse 14, the people are warned, the king will take the best of your fields and vineyards and orchards and give them to his servants. He takes the good things that you have and he gives them as favors to people that will advance his power. Much like the scandals we often see in the news where politicians are giving favors to companies and rich donors. Beyond nepotism, Samuel warns of burdensome taxes. He says, you'll have to give a tenth of your flocks and a tenth of your produce. Not you'll have to give, the king will take them. You see, there had been a time when the tithe, when the tenth that was given, went to the priests in the service of God and to be redistributed to those who were in need. But now it will go to the government for lavish building products and for military purposes. The king of Israel, Samuel warns, protects his own happiness by breaking Israel's families apart. And so time and again, verse 11, he will take your sons. Verse 13, he will take your daughters. Verse 16, he will take your servants. And so forth and so on. The people have their families broken because the king is taking them and forcing them into labor and into military service. And the end result, Samuel warns in verse 18, is that on that day, you, Israel, will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. Notice, in chapter 7, they cry out to God and they are saved. But in chapter 8, when they've been trusting in their king and their government, they cry out and nothing happens. We are presumptuous, this scripture teaches us, when we place our ultimate hope in government, expecting it to protect family, provide prosperity, and empower us. We are presumptuous. We are expecting too much on our terms. And consistently, this is one of the two major themes that we see in scripture about government. Think about the best of kings. King David, a man after God's own heart, and yet also an adulterer and a murderer. King Solomon. Solomon was so oppressive that after he died, the people went to his son and said, your father made us work far too much. Please be merciful to us. And the son refused, and so the kingdom split in half. King Josiah, the greatest king of the southern kingdom of Judah, he goes out to war against the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Even after the Pharaoh says, I don't want to fight you, and after Josiah has received a message in 2 Chronicles 35, not to do this, a message from God. He goes anyway, and he dies, as do many of the men of Israel. The best kings of Israel are still guilty of some of the worst sins and evils. And those are the best kings. The end result in the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles of the kingship, in those books, ends up being idolatry. In 1 Kings 16, King Ahab of Israel sets up a temple once again to Baal. And Solomon himself sets up and sacrifices to Ashtart in 1 Kings 11. The kings have taken the people right back to those initial idols. So when you hear, vote for me and everything is going to be fixed, this is telling us it's not true. You know that it is presumption and not hope. And so Samuel says quite clearly to the people of Israel, well, really, the Lord says it to Samuel, excuse me, in chapter 8, verse 7, he tells Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, 
For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me for being king over them. They have rejected me. They have put their hope in government and not in the Lord. Well, what then? Do we despair? Do we need to then sit back quietly and wait for the second coming of Christ and then the social issues and the economic issues and the political issues that Scripture leads us to be concerned about? Is it only then that something is going to get better? Again, no. I think hope is the middle ground. We do have hope because we have a God who has proven himself to be one that we can hope in. The Lord proves himself to be our only source of hope, the true savior and provider of love, prosperity, and victory. Now, I need to be clear here. This is not the prosperity gospel. When I say that the Lord provides us with prosperity, I don't mean name it and claim it. God, I believe in you. Where's my $10,000? It's not what I mean. The victory that he promises us is an ultimate victory over sin and death. It may not be victory right here, right now, over a particular struggle or illness that you're having. I don't know the mysterious mind of God. He can heal, but we know that he doesn't always choose to. And family, because you have a lot of kids, that doesn't necessarily mean God favors you more. And if you have few kids, it doesn't mean God favors you less. In fact, in the New Testament, we're told that even singleness can be a higher calling. So this is not something we need to understand simplistically. And yet, we can still say that the King of Kings gives to us in a way that government cannot. You see, the King of Kings sets aside his power, comes to earth, his son comes to earth in human form and dies on our behalf so that by setting aside his power, he can be victorious against our ultimate enemies, sin and death. The King of Kings calls us, the church, to give generously that we may store up everlasting treasure in heaven. And through that giving, so that we can help those in need right here and right now. And the King of Kings gives us the greatest family because he welcomes us into his own family as sons and daughters. If that's what we're offered, if that's the object of our hope, why would we settle for anything that a government campaign can give us? God gives us a greater hope and yet, because God is so powerful, we despair if we believe that God cannot use broken and sinful government to do some good here and now. We can't place our ultimate hope in government, but we can't say, nothing's going to get better, I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back. That's not the biblical vision either. Because yes, the kings of Israel are sinful at their best and at their worst, we don't even want to go there, but what comes out of the line of kings Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David. And this is the fundamental tension of how the Bible deals with government. The best of governments do evil and the worst of governments are surprisingly used by God. Look at Babylon and Assyria, those idolatrous, evil, violent empires of the ancient Near East that God says through his prophets, I'm using those people to punish you, Israel, for your sins. Look at Rome, another evil empire, and yet one of their unjust actions, Pilate presiding over the execution of the innocent man, Jesus Christ. God uses that to bring about our salvation. I think a true understanding of government is found in the balance between Romans 13 and Revelation 13. In Romans 13, Paul tells us, God has set up government, submit to it. 
In Revelation 13, government is shown to be an evil beast in an apocalyptic vision that Jesus Christ will overcome in the end. God does establish government, allowing all of its evils, and he will use it, and yet it can't be our ultimate hope. Its ultimate hope is to be replaced by the true King Jesus Christ. So we cannot despair. There are social issues and economic issues and political matters that do matter. And God can make some progress here and now. But our ultimate hope is not in the government to do that. Sometimes it may be a tool to help us get there. Other times we might need to oppose it and be suspicious of it. This is easy in theory, but in practice it can be challenging. So I want to leave you with a test. Four questions. I'm going to ask you to examine yourself with the Holy Spirit's help to see where you might land in despair, in hope, or in presumption. The first question, <clears throat> do you critique all political candidates when they fall short of Scripture? Sure, it's really easy to critique that other person from that party that you don't like and say, well, look, they're not Christian at all. Look at all this evil stuff they're doing. And yes, I'm sure they are. But what about the person you're voting for? Can you say, you know what? I like you on this, but Scripture says you're dead wrong here, and I want you to change. If not, you might be presumptuous, placing too much hope in your government. Number two, do you act to improve your community? Sometimes this action might be voting, it might be lobbying, it might be protesting, but sometimes it's not political. It might be working through a ministry to help those in need in various ways. But if you're not willing to act toward whatever social changes you think scripture leads you to, you might be in a situation of despair. I don't know your heart, but it could be a warning sign. Third, do you pray for the social issues that concern you? If you vote about them and you want government to change them, but you don't pray about them, you might be presumptuous, expecting government to do what you're not hoping for God to do. And fourth, do you worry too much about politics? If you're constantly worried and distressed that the government isn't doing exactly what you think they should, you might be expecting too much of your government. Even the best of governments are sinful. Not that we shouldn't hold them accountable, but we shouldn't hope in them. This could be a sign of presumption. Now, I walked through this sermon with my wife, and she said, you failed this test many times. And I said, I know. God has me preaching this for a reason. So I want to be clear, I'm a hypocrite up here, but I challenge you this week to ask yourself, do I pass this test? And if not, follow the example of Israel in chapter 7 and offer true repentance. Change your heart. Recognize emotionally that you have sinned. Verbally confess this to God and maybe to someone else. And newly place your trust in the Lord. For the Lord has proven himself to be our only source of hope, the true Savior and provider of love, prosperity, and victory. As the worship team comes up, let me pray for us.